Okay, well, I'd like to welcome everybody. We are continuing on with our series on ecclesiology, of course, the study of the church. And uh, this morning's topic is going to be the fellowship of the Spirit. And we want to understand uh, the Spirit's role in the church. Oftentimes, this is an area that is very misunderstood in the church, and yet it's so vital because nothing happens in the church uh, that isn't prompted by the Spirit. And we know that God is certainly alive and well in us through the Spirit. So let's begin by thinking about the Spirit. You should have an outline in front of you. Uh, it's fairly general, so I'll let you fill this in as we go. Um, by way of introduction, we, we know that at Pentecost, Jesus kept his promise, which was also the promise of God the Father. We see that in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, um, where the church does not live with a fading memory of the presence of the Lord, but with the reality of his coming in spirit. And remember, as we were going through the Gospel of John, how we uh, saw the despondency of the disciples when Jesus told them, I'm going to be going away. But remember that he told them as well that he would send what? He would send the comforter, right? He would send the comforter to them and that they would be not left as orphans. They wouldn't be left alone, but there would be the Spirit coming. And so we see that the presence of the Lord would never be um, gone from God's people. And, of course, this was something that was very... um, concerning to the disciples until they finally understood what the Lord meant by this. Um, We know the people of God claimed by Christ in the blood of the new covenant are made uh, the fellowship of the Spirit uh, as they await the returning of the Lord. So here again, we are in fellowship with the Spirit. The Spirit indwells us. Uh, The Spirit comes to make us His and to become ours. And we want to think about the Spirit in in, in two ways. On the one hand, God possesses his people both individually and as a body. Um, And on the other hand, God's people possess the Lord. So the Spirit seals kind of this mutual possession. Not only do we possess the Spirit, but the Spirit also possesses us. And the Spirit is God's seal that is that is his claim on us, that we are his heritage, that we're chosen in Christ, remember, before the foundation of the world, something we see in Ephesians chapter 1. So the Spirit is our seal too. We, we know that God gives us, uh, as his people, a claim on him, um, as our inheritance, and the Spirit is in a sense a down payment. It's a foretaste of the glory to come, and we see that again expounded for us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And, and it is the Spirit, isn't it, that keeps us hungry for the things of God? I mean, think of how important the Spirit of God is. Revealing to us the truth of God's Word, revealing to us the presence of God, uh, in, in endowing us with the gifts of the Spirit, helping us to understand that uh, we are very much in the presence of God and God is very much in our presence. And that is... Um, just an incredible truth and an incredible foretaste, isn't it, of what's to come? And by the way, if you have any comments or questions, I don't know how you normally do it. <laughs> Feel free to interrupt me because I, otherwise I just keep kind of rambling on. So if you have anything you want to say, uh, which would be very appreciated, <laughs> feel free to interrupt me at any time. Okay, so the Bible speaks then of the Spirit as both the giver and the gift. And the Lord, we know, gives gifts that empower the body of Christ. That's going to be something we'll be talking about in this morning's message. And so he claims us as his possession. But 
Even those gifts do not exhaust the fellowship of the Spirit. In other words, we don't want to get the misidea that having gifts of the Spirit is, is literally the sum total of our relationship to God through the Spirit. That is certainly a part of it, but it doesn't exhaust our fellowship with the Spirit by any means. And so we don't want to have that idea. Um, we, we are filled with the Spirit of God. We have the Spirit of Christ. And so we realize that literally everything that we are in Christ is directed by and empowered by the Spirit of God. It is, it is that intimate. Um, you know, just like your arm is attached to your shoulder, I mean, the Spirit of God is, is not just upon us. He's in us. He's through us. He's the one that enables us. He's the one that gives us discernment. Um, in Him, we, we, we have life. Uh, he is the one that is leading us to Christ and, and giving us Christ. So the Spirit is all-encompassing. Now, um, there are some considerations, I think, that we need to um, uh, really meditate upon. Uh, if we think of the Spirit as our own possession, or only as our possession... Um, then we risk depersonalizing him. In other words, if we just look at the Spirit as something we just get, like a Christmas present. Well, I've got, you know, and, and a lot of people look at the Spirit that way, don't they? Oh, I've got, look at, look at what God gave me. Uh, it's just like getting a Christmas present under a tree. The problem with that is, is that can cause us to really become very um, depersonalizing uh, when it comes to the Spirit. And, and what happens is, guys, we lose sight of the Lordship of Christ. We lose sight of, of, um, of thinking as the spirit as more than just the spiritual volta voltage into which we can plug. So we, we don't want to just look at it as though, you know, the spirit is out here. It's something we've been given, and, and we just kind of use it or abuse it as we desire, use him as we desire. Um, so... That is one of the dangers. On the other hand, if we forget that we possess him, we lose sight of the mystery of his power in our lives and service. In other words, we do possess the Spirit. And the Spirit does give us power. He energizes us. And so we never want to lose sight of the fact that um, he is literally at the core of everything that we do. Um, and again, when we think back to Pentecost, we realize that when we're talking about the Spirit, that's a very important time in the history of God's people when we see uh, that, uh, that, that, that it put the capstone of, of God's covenant with his people on in two ways. First of all, God claiming his people uh, by coming to dwell in his temple uh, as living stones. So we know that God claimed his people, he came to dwell in them, that we were permanently indwelt from that point on with the Spirit of God. Secondly, the disciples were in, endued with the Spirit as the gift sent by the Father and the Son, and that God restored and renewed his people in a new covenant. And we see that again in Ezekiel 36. Um, remember that God longed, or Moses rather, longed for God to put a Spirit on all of his people. Uh, this was something that they looked forward to. Uh, they looked forward to the time of Christ. They looked forward to the Spirit being indwelt by his people. At Pentecost, remember that Peter preached the fulfillment of that desire and of the prophetic promise that we would see if we were to study the uh, book of Joel, where that's spoken of. So we realize that that is, again, a very important time um, and that the risen uh, triumphant and glorified Jesus gave the Spirit in full measure 
from his throne in heaven at that time. So from Pentecost on, the Spirit was given to us in full measure as far as is under the new covenant, as far as what we have, and as far as who we are in Christ. Okay, any questions on that so far? I know I've kind of, that's, that's, that's my introduction, by the way. There's no notes on this. Okay. I mean, you may have notes on this, but I didn't have any notes on it. So if you do... That's good. All right, so I want to talk then about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and this uh, would be in your outline, I hope. Uh, We know that for the Spirit to come to us, that Christ had to be glorified. Remember, we studied this back in John chapter 7 and John chapter 16. But one of the things that we often as Christians are, are not clear on is that the Spirit did not supplant the Son. In other words, the Spirit didn't come as though now Jesus is gone forever. (laughs) It's like, well, Jesus is going away, and the Spirit is coming. And many Christians have this idea that by by Jesus going away, Jesus is permanently away, and we have the Spirit as kind of like this divine caretaker until we go to be with the Lord. And that is not the uh, picture. That is certainly not the theology of the Bible that we see concerning the Spirit. And and this is what we need to understand, that the Spirit doesn't carry us beyond Christ. The Spirit carries us to Christ. Okay, the Spirit carries us to Christ. And the New Testament is replete with this teaching. Now, we don't have time to look at everything, but in Ephesians 4, 4, 4.13, John chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, um, we know... Uh, that, that the Spirit leads us to Christ, not away from Christ or not apart from Christ. In fact, the Lord sends the Spirit literally as another advocate. Um, the Spirit of Christ, uh, uh, the Son, is the Spirit of Sonship who reveals the Father. It is the Spirit that enables us to cry, Abba, the very word that was on the lips of Jesus, remember? And so literally, we are not being shortchanged in our relationship with Christ being indwelt by the Holy Spirit because the Spirit speaks literally, synonymously, and in absolute unity with Jesus Christ. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are in perfect unity. The Trinity is, is not divisive. It is, it is not disunified in any way. And so... In the Spirit, really, the Father and the Son take possession of the church. It's through the Spirit that they possess the church. And that's, I think, a very important aspect for us to understand because we often just feel these divisions. And I think the, uh, the problem comes in often when we think about the personhood of Christ, the personhood of the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is not an it, is it? It's a, it's a who. It's a he. He, who. And so when we think of it this way, we often think, well, if he's the Spirit and he's here and Jesus is the Son of God and he's not here, we have this separation. And that's not, again, what we see in Scripture. We also realize that it is uh, through the Spirit that the church is united to Christ in not only the fellowship of his sufferings, but also the fellowship of his glory. Uh, It's amazing how the Spirit of God is the part of the Trinity, the person of the Trinity, that allows us to partake in the sufferings of Christ. Remember when Jesus said to the disciples that they're to pick up their crosses, right? And that command is for us as well. Um, We couldn't pick up our crosses if it wasn't for the Spirit of God indwelling us. It is the Spirit of God and our understanding of the Spirit that allows us to pick up our crosses. It's when we become believers, when we're indwelt with the Spirit, that we begin to share 
the fellowship of suffering with Christ as well, don't we? And how many of you have experienced that, that becoming a Christian is harder than being a pagan? Any of you agree with that? <laughs> I think it is. Uh, I was, being a pagan was so easy. You know, it was just so easy. Uh, really no work to it at all, was there? But becoming a Christian, uh, being indwelt by the Spirit, realizing who we are in Christ, that we're sanctified, we're separated, we're set apart, that the Spirit begins to illuminate our hearts and minds. And as we begin to walk uh, in Christ's likeness, that will bring about a sharing in the fellowship of suffering. And this is something that the church is, is, is unified in, that, that we go through together. Uh, and, and that can be uh, played out in many ways. Um, so we know that the presence of the Spirit is, is both promise and realization, for in the Spirit of glory we begin to taste the goodness of the Lord, we delight in eternity, but we also share in all of the afflictions that we uh, see that our Lord endured. But along with that, and, and that's what we want to focus on, is the fact that we, we also taste the goodness of the Lord in such immensity, we would desire nothing else. Isn't it amazing? You know, I remember when I was um, reading for the first time Fox's book of Christian Martyrs. Is it, have any of you ever read that book? If you haven't read that as a Christian, that, that should be in every library of every Christian. That is a book that will um, definitely change the way you view your faith. Fox's Book of Christian Martyrs. And, you know, I remember thinking, and, and I would read the accounts of, of, of one dear saint after another who would endure, endure just horrible sufferings uh, and horrible um, torment because of their faith. And I often wondered, you know, how is it that they can do that? You know, how is it that they can, um, how is it that they can endure such suffering in the midst of, you know, this type of um, situation. And, and you know, it, it, it's the Spirit of God. It's, it's, it's only because they've tasted, as we have, the goodness of God through the Spirit of God that we would no longer ever want to go back and be without Christ. Um, you know, one of the things that I think we see in the New Testament, when Peter denied Christ three times... And remember, the scriptures tell us that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Remember? Um, I've got to believe that a lot of that weeping was not certainly simply because he, he sinned and he betrayed the Lord, although that truly was a huge part of it. I believe that a lot of that weeping was because he was out of fellowship with God. He was out of fellowship with Christ. That that, that sin, that betrayal broke that intimacy that Peter had with Christ. And that's why, of course, he needed that restoration. And, you know, isn't it true that when we're in the fellowship of the Spirit, it, that there's something unique about that that you can't, you just can't live without. You just don't want to be without that. How many of you have ever been in sin or perhaps are in sin and you feel that separation from God? You feel that wedge at times that has been put there and, and you long for that just to not be there. Have we had those seasons in our lives where we feel like, you know, yeah, that, you know, I'm not close to God and I realize why I'm not close to God and, and I want that, that fellowship through the Spirit to be uninhibited. So very important aspects of that. Okay. Um, also, we realize that in the fellowship of the Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit, we realize that uh, we could not say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. The Spirit literally illuminates our hearts and minds to truth. 
we could never know truth, the truth of Scripture, without the Spirit's prompting. And I find this to be one of the greatest miracles of our day. If you're ever wondering, does God still do miracles? Well, salvation to me is still the greatest miracle that occurs right before our eyes every single day. But also the fact that we can open the Word of God and read it and understand it. Um, I have seen men who, by their own rights, are far more intelligent than I, open the Scriptures and not have a clue. I mean, they'll read it. How many of you tried to read the Bible before you were saved? How did that go for you? I remember years ago as a kid, I'd open the Bible and, you know, you open to a book like Ezekiel or something, and you're like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, this is like, you know. I mean, it's just, you look at it, and it's like, it might as well be written in a foreign language. We, we can't understand the Word apart from Christ. And so we, um, you know, we see that um, the Spirit of God literally allows us to say Jesus is Lord. And, and, of course, we read of that in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. So we see the church is therefore the people of God and assembly of Christ because it is the fellowship of the Spirit. Okay, any questions on that so far or any comments on that so far? We're still on the first point as far as I know. So, Okay, so moving on, we know that at Pentecost the Lord came to take possession of his people, filling his spiritual house with his presence. Um, we know that uh, the phenomena of Pentecost was quite dramatic. It was, there was wind, there was the fire of Sinai, there was the cloud of glory. Um, and as the prophets had promised, the praises of the Lord were sounded from Jerusalem, calling the nations to worship. So we know that Pentecost was an amazing time in the life of the church. The disciples certainly marveled at that time at the presence of the Lord. They praised the Lord. Um, God gave them speech in the languages of the nations. You know, this is an amazing thing that the Spirit of God came upon them this way because unlike America, where pretty much English is spoken from shore to shore, although we have more probably Spanish, probably a little more diversity in language today than we did when I was young, um, it wasn't like that in the apostolic day. You could go 25 miles from the heart of Jerusalem and you could have five, six, seven, eight different languages that were spoken. Uh, so it wasn't like it, like it is. And I found that interesting when I was in Israel that I heard at least four or five different languages of different people groups speaking in different languages. So you can see how important that would have been that the Spirit of God allowed uh, this preaching, this speaking in languages of the nations in order to authenticate the person and work of Christ, in order to, again, authenticate the gospel and the new covenant that was being uh, revealed at that time. And God was praised. We know that Peter taught by Jesus and was filled with the Spirit. He proclaimed the fulfillment, um, not simply of one who was revealing prophecy, but of God's whole plan. What amazes me about Peter's sermons in Acts chapter 2 and 3, probably some of the greatest sermons ever preached by man, um, we see that Peter had an understanding not just of the here and now, but he had, in a sense, an idea of God's plan for redemptive history. And that can only come through the Spirit of God. That's not something that could be thought up or conjured up or taught or learned outside of the revelation of God's Spirit. So an amazing, um, an amazing display of, of uh, Holy Spirit-given knowledge and certainly of preaching as well. Um, and it amazes me that Peter as a fisherman could preach like that. Um, you know... Um, 
little, uh, little envious when you read those messages. I mean, those messages, those are messages, if you preach them, you just want to read them word for word. I mean, because you really couldn't go too far wrong reading those. If you haven't read those in a while, those messages by Peter are incredible. Um, okay, so we know then that the Spirit is the gift of the risen Christ. Uh, and there's another consideration here. Because of that, the church cannot be called Christ's resurrection body because Christ did not die to be raised in the church. And I think that's a good point. I mean, Christ didn't die to be raised in the church. Uh, but while the Spirit does not incarnate the Son in the church, the Spirit does bring him to the church in a union that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. So here again, we want to understand that um, that distinction. Now, having said that, we need to understand as well that the abiding presence of the Spirit really determines the characteristics of the church. We are called in Scripture the temple of the Holy Spirit, are we not? So we realize that it is the Spirit, um, literally, that determines the characteristics of the church. Um, one of the things that it defines is the fact that the church is holy because God is holy. One of the most important aspects of the church is that the church should be holy. And, and let me throw this out there to you. What do we mean when we say that the church should be holy? Well, we're going to learn more about this, that the church is holy, one apostolic, Catholic. What do we mean when we say that the church is to be holy? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Mike? Okay, separate. To be holy literally means to be separate, doesn't it? So it means to be exactly separate from the world, that we're separate unto Christ, that we're unique that way. And this is one of the very important distinctions of the church, because when people come into the church, if they don't see anything else, they ought to see a separated people, should they not? You know, one of the things I always pray in our church is that if we have visitors or unbelievers that come and visit with us, that they leave here thinking, those people are different. There's something about those people. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, because the church is to be holy. And um, we realize that, that we can even make a case, and a very good case, for the uh, rituals that we saw under the Mosaic Law pointing directly to that aspect of the church. Because you remember when in the Old Testament that, that sacrifices were brought, or if you were to go to Leviticus 23, for example, and read about the feasts of the Lord, one of the things that God would not negotiate was the purity of what was to happen. And perhaps this is most dramatically seen on the Day of Atonement, because if that was done wrong, all I can say is I'm glad I'm not the high priest that had to go into the Holy of Holies, because there was a reason they tied a rope around his ankle, okay? And, you know, one thing that God would not um, back off of was the purity of worship that needed to be manifested, the holiness of God's people. And we see under the Mosaic Law that, uh, that there was great care taken in their worship of God in the way that the law was set down, that it was, it was carried out exactly the way the Lord required it to be carried out. And, you know, one of the great um, dangers, I think, in our day and age is that we have often lost sight of that in the church. Uh, the idea being that because we're under the age of grace, you know, that somehow we can live like loosely, now, there are certainly advantages to the New Covenant. We have, an incredible, um, we have incredible liberty in Christ. But you know what? Does that mean that our holiness should be any less than what it was? I, I would argue no. I would argue that God would still want a people today as holy as, he, as his people always were. 
God is immutable, right? He's unchangeable. God's standards haven't changed. Remember that Christ came not to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill the law, right? So that's something we need to keep in mind, that we are to be uh, a holy people. And we see, again, the importance of that. Now, having said that, we realize that the holiness in the church is imperfect. We will never be perfect, this side of glory. So it isn't as though we're naive enough to think that we will attain sinless perfection. But on the other hand, as Paul said, should we sin all the more that grace may abound, God forbid. I mean, we need to understand that that we are to strive for holiness, and we can please God through our holiness. Uh, This is not something that we should take lightly or just think, well, you know, we can't be perfect. How many of you have heard, oh, I'm a Christian, I can't be perfect? How many of you have heard that? Especially like when you want to sin, right? You know, it's like, well, I'm not perfect, you know? And we kind of use that as a little bit of a shield to say that, well, you know, God will just kind of wink at this and, you know, we'll just get back to normal here. We have to be careful not to live that way. It's not exactly what the Bible teaches. Um, Another great aspect here then, again, of the Spirit is that the abiding presence of the Spirit joins the church together into one. And I think this is one of the most delightful, precious, uh, intimate blessings that we have is that we literally become a one people of God, don't we? We're, We're one in Christ. In fact, if you look around in this room, honestly, we should be closer to one another than to some members of our own family, shouldn't we? Because that's what we are and who we are in Christ. We are, we are family in every sense of the word. And the Spirit is the member of the Trinity that binds us together in community and binds us together into this commonality. And I think that's just one of the great joys of the church, the fellowship that we have, the unity that we have with one another. And I know I've preached on this before. It's unlike any unity that you will find anywhere in the world. There is no organization, no club, no social uh, uh, organization that, that will match or be with the local churches. And you can see this worldwide. You know, I had told you, going to China and being with, with the Chinese believers over there, I mean, I felt like in the first 30 seconds, like I'd known these men all my life. Because that's how it is in Christ, isn't it? That oneness, that common, commonality that we have in Christ. What a wonderful thing um, that God has joined all together. Uh, we know uh, the Jew, the Gentile from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We know that the, 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 the Spirit that was given to the church uh, in, in, in the power of God, went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Um, what a miracle that Gentiles would now present their bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord, coming out of obviously many pagan uh, backgrounds and, and religions, that they would give themselves in spiritual service uh, under the new covenant. The temple of God wasn't just local, uh, it became universal and and we see that today. The church, the body of Christ is universal today, isn't it? It's not just in our little area. We never want to lose sight of that, that we're not, you know, we're not just the little body of Christ here. The, the body of Christ is universal. Um, it, it's, it's spread worldwide. And, um, and in my way of thinking, uh, I feel that the only reason the Lord truly hasn't returned is because there are more saints to be gathered. Into the camp. I mean, I can't think of any other reason that God would tarry. Now, I could be wrong about this. There might be other reasons that he's tarrying. But I've got to believe that's a main reason. 
so that others might be brought into the body of Christ, that he will call his sheep from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. And we know that that is certainly uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, As I said, we're joined to Christ in his suffering, um, and we've seen the glory of Christ's suffering, certainly primarily on the cross, um, and yet we realize that through that suffering, Christ glorified himself, and it's through our lives and our suffering and our work and service to Christ that we, again, will await our future glorification with him in glory. And what a great promise that we have. And isn't it amazing that we don't live like those who don't have hope? You know, it's the Spirit that gives us hope. uh, That this world is certainly full of trial and tribulation, but the world to come gives us plenty of hope. So um, we see that we are are equipped by the Spirit to um, handle and to serve Christ in every way. Even the church militant, as we struggle to carry the gospel forth, we are equipped, we are anxious and hopeful of Christ's return. Um, And so we see the Spirit given uh, at Pentecost in the way it was, then moves us to ask two questions. Um, First of all, did the church begin at Pentecost? And second, does the Spirit who dwells in the church also work outside of the church? In other words, is the Spirit just localized in the church, or is this something that uh, goes beyond that? But before we get into that, do I have any questions? Any comments that you'd like to make? So I can take a breather here? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Not really, but... Yes? Um, a little while back you spoke of how interesting it is that non-believers will open up the scriptures and just completely not understand what it's talking about. Yes. These days, if you watch the History Channel, it's mostly ghosts and UFOs. Yes, it is. Yeah. But um, I was watching a show once called Aliens in the Bible, and they use Ezekiel 1 Aliens in the Bible. to talk about the fact that God's... <laughs> mobile throne was actually landing gears of a spaceship that landed on Earth. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, that's... Yeah, you know, it's... Um it's amazing. It, it, it makes you realize that without the Spirit, how weak and gullible men are. How persuaded we are by the forces of evil. And I mean, it shows you how powerful the darkness is when there's no light. Because, you know, as believers, don't you find yourself thinking, you really believe that? I mean, how can you... It's almost mind-numbing, isn't it, that someone would believe that? I had a neighbor that I witnessed to that believed there was a different God on every planet. And he watched the History Channel as well. You know, he would watch... Nostradamus was his big hero. And so he would come to my house every time he watched the show on Nostradamus, and we would talk about theology. You know, he'd go, oh, yeah, you know, there's this planet, there's this God out there, he looks like a banana. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and it's just like, what? You know, and, and you know, you, you, you almost want to laugh at this, but you realize they're dead serious. Uh, you know, they really, really believe this stuff. And, and it just shows you the power of darkness. You know, I don't think we could ever understand the power of, of sin and deceit and how, how deep that goes. Um, but um, anyway, I, I probably won't be looking for any spaceships in the near future, but... I guess that would be kind of a cool way to be taken to glory, but, you know, I, I don't... I prefer the angelic way. I don't know about you. But. Okay, let's talk about the church. Did the church begin at Pentecost? Um, 
The question, I think, finds an answer in the history of redemption. Pentecost certainly did not create the people of God. We know that the people of God always existed. The people of God existed in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. God called his people. And I want to just establish this right away, that, that, that people were always saved through faith. Were they not? It was always faith, whether it's the Old Testament, the New Testament. And if we say that people were saved by faith, then we have to understand that the Holy Spirit operated very, very vigorously in the Old Testament. All right? We never want to get this idea that the Holy Spirit you know, was revealed at Pentecost and that that was the first time. The, the, the Spirit of God was not the mystery revealed. Okay? It was the Gospel. It was, it was the New Covenant that was revealed. But it wasn't the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has always been um, leading God's people with God's people. Now certainly we realize that the Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell God's people under the Old Covenant. But the Spirit of God was certainly very active. So we know that the Spirit, uh, that Pentecost didn't create the people of God. It would be better to say that the Spirit of God renewed them. In other words, as men were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, uh, this was part of God's redemption, part of his progressive revelation, through which the Spirit of God would now equip and, um, and um proclaim through us all that we needed for life under the new covenant. We realize that things certainly did change at Pentecost. Um, we realize that, um, that the gospel would go forth to Jew and Gentile alike. So uh, we realize that um, this promised renewal um, would go certainly outside of the borders of Israel. You remember in the Old Testament that God chose Israel basically as their covenant people. Uh, for whatever reason, God chose, not because they were better, not because they were worse, not because he couldn't have chosen another nation. He chose because he chose. We all believe in election, right? So God chose because he chose. Um, and, and yet we realize that God's plan of redemption was not to keep the gospel in, in one people alone, but that that gospel would be spread to all people in every land throughout the earth. And, of course, we have seen this um, from the time of Pentecost on, that God revealed under the New Covenant that the Gentiles would be grafted in, that there would be a, an extent to which this would be uh, moved in a direction throughout the world. Um, so in Christ, the true Israel, God's chosen and faithful servants, God's people are transformed, and we know that through the New Covenant there is, was hope for the Gentiles. We see this in Ephesians 2.12, Ephesians 20. Um, so the Gospel did go out. And we realize, if we read Romans chapter 11, that um, the natural branches, which would have been Israel of God's olive tree, had been pruned for unbelief. Remember that wild branches, the Gentiles were grafted in by faith in Christ. So that grafting in was literally the Gentiles being grafted in. Um, but we have to ask, if one enters the people of God only by being united to Christ, what of the Old Testament saints? What are we, what are we to say of the Old Testament saints? Well, the Old Testament believers we know, excuse me, the New Testament I think answers that question. And, and it does so by telling us that the Old Testament believers looked forward to Christ. That is, they trusted in the promises of God spoken by the prophets. And here again, I think the very important aspect of this is to understand that salvation has always come by faith. Faith was accounted as righteousness. So we want to make sure that we understand that. We, we cannot, we cannot disassociate uh, the faith of our Old Testament uh, believers 
they trusted the promises of God. Remember, in the Old Testament, they looked forward to Christ. And there were many prophecies that were told to them about the coming Messiah. So they looked forward to the cross. We look back to the cross, but the cross is central in, in the life of every believer, is it not? That, that faith that we have is central in the cross, whether before it, whether after it, it is the cross that is so central. And this is why we preach in the church very dogmatically that the cross of Christ is never just a historical, obsolete kind of concept of theology. Um, we need the power of the cross every single day, don't we? Every single day. And so we see... Um, the importance of that. Uh, let's see, I lost my place here. Okay. Um, so the Old Testament saints then trusted the promises of God spoken by the prophets. Um, the Old Testament tells the story of those who believed God's promises. Uh, Hebrews reminds us that Moses accounted disgrace for the sake of Christ is of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. We read of that in Hebrews 11. 26. And, and again, such a statement is not just hyperbole. It's not just uh, something he throws out there. Uh, Moses knew that there would be another prophet who would be raised up. Uh, Moses knew there would be another prophet raised up who would be like him but greater than him. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. So we see that um, this was something he was very aware of. And again, there's that idea of looking forward. Um, now, there were, in the Old Testament, surely episodes of the Spirit's presence. We know that throughout the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit endowing the people of God in different occasions. Uh, for example, when the Spirit led the, the children of Israel, remember, out of bondage from Egypt, um, we see certainly the Spirit of God falling upon the prophets, falling upon men and women for special occasions. So we see that there were certainly times when they were endowed by the Holy Spirit. They were empowered, I guess would be a better way to say it, by the Spirit. Um, the Spirit, remember, came upon the elders under Moses, under Samson, even under King Saul. So the Spirit was very active in the Old Testament. There was no sense in which the Spirit was null and void or mysterious. And I always find it interesting that people can say, well, the Spirit really wasn't really that much, uh, really that important in the Old Testament. Yikes! <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. That was, the Spirit was upon them. Uh, they uttered the oracles of God, we know. Um, but uh, the Spirit instructed Israel in the desert. We see that in Nehemiah 9.20. The Spirit was grieved by Israel's behavior. Um, it was the Spirit that led them and cared for them in the wilderness. Isaiah 63.10 and 11, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. We see that. Um, and so we see that um, the Spirit of God, very, very important in the Old Testament. Now, it brings up another question. What are we talking? What, how does that account for both continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testament people of God? And this is, I think, a very important issue. And uh, does anybody understand what we mean when we're talking about continuity in Scripture? Does anybody um, understand what that means? I am going to explain this in a minute, but I just want to know if has anybody ever heard that term? Has anybody ever heard the terms continuity or discontinuity? Okay. How many of you have never heard those terms before? Okay. Um, when we talk about continuity and discontinuity in the scriptures, what we're talking about is how much of God's redemptive plan is continuous throughout 
redemptive history. In other words, from Genesis through Revelation. In other words, how much, how much consistency, how much oneness is there there, as opposed to how much discontinuity is there. For example, um, there are those, uh, more, more of your covenant theologians would see more of a continuity. In other words, they would see, uh, they would see Israel as basically... Um, the church of God in the Old Testament, and so they would see a continuity, a progressive revelation where the church was revealed under the New Covenant, obviously with the Spirit of God. There are those who would promote more of a discontinuity uh, where they would see the, a real great distinction between the Mosaic Law and what happened there versus the New Covenant where Jesus came and began to work in and through the Spirit of God, the church being quite separate. So how do we, now that's a very uh, pathetic, short, and not real good (laughs) explanation of this, but I don't have the time to really explain this. Um, I believe that there is both discontinuity and continuity in the scriptures. I, I think to say that there's total continuity and total discontinuity would be absurd. Um, because of the fact that we see both. First of all, let's talk about continuity in the scriptures. There is certainly continuity in the scriptures. God's redemptive plan was revealed in Genesis, wasn't it? I mean, right from the get-go. We see that when, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? There was a, an animal slain. There was clothing provided. We see, in a sense, a picture of, of Christ's sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, even back in Genesis. So when we talk about God's redemptive history, when we talk about the fact that God purposed himself to save his people and to work toward redemption, I see continuity there. I mean, we can never say that God just came up with this idea at Pentecost. Oh, my goodness, you know, I think I'm going to save these guys. Um, You know, so we want to make sure that we're seeing um, continuity there. Um, Also, where do we see continuity? I believe in the Mosaic Law, we see continuity when we understand the purpose and the function of the feasts of the Lord. In other words, when we look at everything that Israel was commanded to do under the Old Covenant, uh, and especially, and I draw your attention back to Leviticus 23, what do we see? That everything really was a picture of what? Christ. Christ was central there. Um, And again, we can take this farther and say, if we want to talk about every book of the Old Testament, Christ is always the central theme throughout the Bible, isn't he? So we see great continuity there, that that there was always, again, a picture of, of, of God's plan to bring his Savior in redemptive history, and we realize that everything that was under the Mosaic Law really was to bring honor and glory to Christ. It was to look forward to. And remember the sacrifices given there were only temporary, wouldn't they? We know that the sacrifices of the blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish what Jesus alone accomplished in his redemption. So, you know, to say that there's no continuity in the Bible um, would be certainly, I think, to be an error. Also, we realize that in heaven... As we move forward, if we think about it prophetically, if we think about it from the New Testament on, we know that in glory there aren't going to be two sets of heavens, two sets of people. Uh, We're not going to have a a redemptive Israel, and we're not going to have a redemptive Gentile. Everybody will be one. I mean, we're, we're going to be one in glory. As we are in glory, we know that God will eventually make no distinction. There'll be no Jew, no Gentile, no you know, bond slave, no free man. So we see, in other words, that it was God's redemptive plan 
uh, ultimately to save a people unto himself. Now, I also think that we have to be very cautious not to say that there's total continuity and no discontinuity. And the reason that I say that is because there, the way that the Mosaic Law operated was completely different than the way the church operates. Um, we see that while under the Mosaic Law everything pointed to Christ, we realize that there wasn't that, the, the way that men worshipped, the way that they related to God was very different. Um, you remember, for example, when at, at Tabernacles, um, the, the people were uh, required to bring a feast. They were required to bring an offering. They could only go so far into the temple. And whether you were a woman, whether you were a Gentile, whether you were a Jewish man, there was a place, and there were big signs, I'm sure, that said warning. And if they had electricity, it would be going tilt, tilt, tilt. Don't come any farther. Uh, because that was something that was set up. Now, we realize that God worked with his people, in a sense, through the prophets. There was... Uh, it was a different economy in the sense of the way the Lord worked uh, was his uh, progressive revelation or his plan of redemption changed. No, it was just different. But I think it's a stretch to say that the church operates in exactly the same way um, as the Mosaic Law did. And so, you know, we, we, you know, we know that that's a distinction. We know that that's one of the flashpoints between, say, dispensational and covenant theology. You know, what about... What about that? Um, I honestly think, you know, Pastor Rick and I were talking about this not long ago. I don't think there's as much of a distinction as if you really, as a lot of people make this out to be. I think sometimes we make this out to be a lot more tense than it is. Um, but here again, you know, we understand that, uh, you know, if, if you're a dispensationalist, you, you would believe that, you know, there is a sense in which God is going to bring some prophetic uh, promises yet to a remnant of Israel um, that God, through the nation, would still be working with some covenant promises he made. But I think it's a stretch to say that God works through Israel as though he just disregards Gentiles. I, I don't see that in the New Testament. Um, and again, the purpose of all of this is to bring a, a people of one to his own. In other words, it's not to separate people, but it's to bring them together in unity. Um, so, you know, we could fight this out for a long time. I'm not going to do that because I really don't think it's, you know, I, I really think we're a lot closer at times than what we realize. But we want to make sure that we um, understand um, that there is continuity in the Bible. There's some discontinuity. Things are the same in, in God's redemptive plan, but the way that God um, worked in and through his people is, is discontinuous in some ways. Um, so I'll let you again... Um, study that out further, or we can talk about it at another time. Uh, how much time do I have? What, this ends at 10, 15. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to get into just a minute. Is the spirit confined to the church? Uh, I think this is an important issue. This is often something we wonder about. Is the spirit confined to the church? Um, we know that the Spirit of God dwells in His people. It dwells in the church. Does that mean that it's confined to the church? Well, we've kind of studied this before. But we know that the Spirit of God is not boxed in by the constraints of human institutions. So to say that the Spirit is constrained in His work in the church would be a wrong theological view to take. And I would be pretty dogmatic about that, that the Spirit is not confined to His work in the church. He is certainly the Creator, uh, sovereign, omnipotent, governs all things, um, and 
his field of operation is basically the universe, as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's, it certainly isn't limited to us. Um, let's see. Um, what do I want to say about this? Okay. If we want to think about the exclusiveness of the spirit, we can say that there is a sense in which uh, there is no salvation outside of those who come to Christ. So we know that the Spirit's work is unique in the sense that it, he only indwells the hearts of believers. We all agree with that? We, we, we know that um, when it comes to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that is something that is given through special revelation. It's given at the point of regeneration. So if we want to talk about any kind of limitless Limit, if we want to limit, rather, God in any way, we could say that the Spirit's indwelling is limited to believers, but we certainly can't limit the work of the Spirit to believers. That it certainly, we realize, goes well outside of the church. Um, in fact, we know that it is God who inspires us with faith through the Spirit, and we are told and commanded to take that faith out to a lost and dying world, and it is the Spirit and His power that helps us to do that. So the Spirit is certainly universal in that sense. Um, John uh, Calvin basically called the Spirit our mother, um, which is kind of an interesting term because of the fact that it, it's so uh, a much of a part of us. Um, and we know that from Pentecost on, when we see that the gospel goes forth, we know that the Lord added to his company of people daily, um, and they're not just added to the church as though you would add to the Elks Club or the Moose Lodge or the JCs. Okay, they're added in a divine, supernatural, miraculous way. They're added through regenerated hearts. That's the difference. So right there, we see the work of the Spirit outside of the church and active in the hearts of many people as they're regenerated. Um, we we're not exclusive that way, um, and we realize that. Also, it is the Spirit of God, and we don't have time to really get into this, it is the Spirit of God that restrains evil. Let me tell you something. If you think things are bad in the world today, think how bad things would be if the Spirit of God was not restraining evil in the world today. I mean, how bad can man be? You know, I hate to say this, but I can't even fathom the wickedness of the human heart unchecked. Now, certainly we see evil in this world. We see a tremendous amount of wickedness. Uh, but, you know, there is a sense, isn't there not, that, that, that the Spirit restrains, in a sense, the world. And so we are grateful for that. Um, and we realize that the Spirit's work is in and through all the nations. So the Spirit is universal in its power, in its influence. Certainly it is unique in its indwelling, but its effect and its power and its proclamation goes far beyond the church walls. Um, now I want to talk just for a minute for the last five minutes here on the presence of the Spirit. There are two attributes that define the Spirit's purposes um, as, he found that, as, as the Spirit found the church. That is that he is the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of life. So we have to understand that it is the Spirit that brings truth that he confirms the witness of the Old Testament to Christ. And we know that, um, literally, this is what Peter spoke um, when he declared that uh, the truth was given 
uh, of Christ to the apostles, and we see this in 1 Corinthians 2.10, Ephesians 2, Hebrews 1. And remember that one of the first evidences of this, the Spirit's presence of truth, was that Peter was able to utter gospel truth. Remember when Jesus said, I'll bring to your remembrance all those things that I taught you. It was brought to their remembrance when the Spirit of God indwelt them. And they began to understand, and they began to teach truth. And this is why, by the way, folks, we stand on apostolic authority. Amen? Apostolic teaching is is what was given once and for all to the saints. We cannot afford, nor can we not draw a line in the sand when it comes to the authority of apostolic teaching. Um, You know, with this uh, new perspectivism and other things that have crept into the church over the years, like, well, maybe Paul didn't mean this, or, you know, I I think we could look at this differently, or, you know, that, that can be a very dangerous road to go down because that can lead to heresy. Um, the, the, the faith was given once and for all. You know, I heard an old Baptist saying, now, I don't know, I, I always hate these little cliches because, you know, you can poke holes in them, but what is it? If it's new, it isn't true, and if it's true, it isn't new. Um, I don't know if that's really a right thing to apply. But when it comes to the, the apostolic teaching, we want to make sure that we're standing on the authority of God's Word because that's what we're taught in the Word of God. And if we believe that this is inerrant, if we believe this is infallible, then we just can't take some of it and leave the rest of it, right? We can't pick and choose and say, well, you know, I don't like that, so I think I'll just forget that. Uh, We stand on it. So the presence of truth, one of the greatest works of the Spirit in our life is that we know truth. You shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free. We need to know truth. Um, We realize how important this is because, as you brought up, Vitor, apart from the Spirit... The things of the gospel seem as foolishness to men, don't they? I mean, you know, to the, to the unsaved world, our gospel seems like a bloody mess. It seems like a hideous, horrible thing. It seems like foolishness. And yet to us, we realize it's the power of God unto salvation. We realize how precious this is and, um, and how, um, apart from the Spirit of God, we cannot know truth. We just cannot know it apart from God. Uh, we don't learn it. We don't gain it. We don't acquired on our own, it comes to us through revelation. And it comes to us through the whole counsel of God. Um, Let's see, I want to skip this. But second, we know that the spirit uh, that is possessing the church is also the author of life. In fact, we know that the biblical terms for spirit are the words for breath, pneuma, from which we get pneumatology, the study of what? The Holy Spirit. Uh, Pneumonia, right? Which is like a lung thing, breath, right? Um, so we see the Spirit of God is the life breath of, of God to us. Um, and um, this life breath is not, again, just this raw energy. It's not just divine energy. Um, it, is, it is literally indwelling us to the point that we share in the life of God. We're born of the Spirit to be children of God. We partake in the resurrection life of Christ through the Spirit of God. And we see that um, the Spirit indwelling us, the Spirit giving us life, is not some abstract principle. Um, you know, it's true to say that people that are unbelievers are literally the walking dead. Is it not true? They're, they're alive, but they're not alive. Um, and in the Spirit, we are infinitely alive. We are literally infused with the breath of God, and we are saved from our sins through the atoning work of Christ for us, that we receive the Holy Spirit as Jesus uh, told his disciples they would.
So again, the presence of the Spirit is a community blessing. Uh, Christ has removed the outward constraints of the old covenant. His spirit provides a unity that could never be achieved through any external structures of the law. God knew that, that that would never be a permanent type of situation. Remember that new wine of the spirit bursts the old wineskins. You can't put new wine in an old wineskin, can you? And, and so we realize that that will not work. Uh, the prophets promised that the Spirit of God would circumcise the hearts of his people, that he would dwell among them, and we know that the Spirit keeps this promise. Our hearts have been circumcised in Christ. And um, so this is what we share in. Um, we literally share in the life of Christ, a life that will go on for all eternity. Um, so look around, because these are the people you're going to see forever. Don't get depressed. It'll be good. You'll, you'll enjoy it. Um, we are not only possessed by the Spirit, but we possess the Spirit as well. So let's pray, should we? And we'll end our class. Well, Father, thank you for this important consideration of the Spirit of God, Lord, that we can look at uh, the magnificent work that you have done, Lord, in the redemptive act of, of your plan of salvation, Lord, that you would send your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for those that you would call to be your own, Lord, that they would be saved through the blood of Christ, not through works, but by grace, and that as they are brought into your kingdom, Lord, you have promised that you would bring to them the great comforter. And we know that the Spirit of God is that comforter. And, Lord, it is the very presence of Christ in us through the Spirit that helps us to understand that you have always fulfilled your promise, O Lord, to never leave us nor forsake us. And so we're thankful, Lord. May we enjoy what is truly a miracle of fellowship in the Spirit of God. And may we continue to reflect Christ-likeness in the body of Christ so that all who enter these doors would see a different people, a people that is not as those in the world, but who are set apart, holy, separated unto Christ. And Lord, that through our love and through our compassion and through our witness, and through our lives, we might bring many more into the kingdom, being used by you as the gospel goes forth. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for your attentiveness.